Welcome to another episode of Idiopod. I am TJ Stone. I am Shane Glover. And this is another episode with uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, he's actually my next door neighbor, Matt Kraus, Matthew Kraus, as he's known in some circles. He's a professional drummer. And this, this is kind of a, a landmark episode because this was the first time I had to fly solo. Flying solo. Old Shane couldn't be there this time around. Yes, uh, super sad. Uh, we will try to <laughs> not make that a, a regular thing. That's right. Uh, there's d- definitely an energy uh, that we have when it's the two of us that, that we just can't mimic when it's just one of us. Uh, but I tried to hold down the fort as best we could and, and had a, a good conversation with Matt. We talked about all sorts of stuff, uh, about how he come from Ohio into Nashville mm. in the mid-90s and just how the Nashville scene has changed so much and <laughs> what it's like to be a professional musician now and how that has totally changed in the last decade or so. And um, also talked about a lot about family, mm. uh, about 9-11 uh, and and how that has so greatly affected like travel and mm, stuff interesting yeah and sure. just how the world has changed from that that was actually the day he found out uh they were pregnant with his first son 9/11 was 9/11 dude yeah i've told you this right that's the day that we didn't find out we were pregnant we knew we were pregnant but it's the day we found out we were having a holding Oh, I think we you found have out told that me day that we were having a boy. Yeah, your oldest son. Yeah. Oh, that's well, an idiosyncronicity. Yeah, my son, my second child, but yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we literally had a doctor's appointment that day to find out we were having a boy. And they had the appointment just to find out they were pregnant. That's crazy. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, I guess there's a lot of people that happened to that day. Yeah. But to actually know someone. Yeah. That's kind of cool. And to to taint that day though, that that's yeah. uh, that's got to. You know, I it's think a I bittersweet day. I shared that with youth a, a couple of weeks ago, I think, that it, it was such a bittersweet, like yeah. the worst thing that's ever happened in my lifetime, along with some incredibly awesome news that changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. So, yeah, it was an interesting day. Well, it, it's a good talk, guys, especially if, if you're uh, uh, desiring to be a professional musician and just to, to hear someone who has navigated that into adulthood and has made a living at it for probably 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so enjoy enjoy the episode. Check us out, as always, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and idiopod.com. See you on the flip side. All right, welcome to another episode of Idiopod. I'm flying solo today without my... Buddy Shane Glover. I am TJ Stone, and I'm here with my neighbor for about the last year and a half, Matt Krause. How are you today, Matt? I'm good, man. And after that uh, grueling commute over to this place, mm, it is yeah. tough. I'm a little tired, but I'll uh, muster up the energy to have this conversation. Yeah, it's a solid <laughs> 20 yards or so. I know. <laughs> for an American, that can be a long way. So. That is true. That is true, especially today. Well, man. There's so many, you know, it's so interesting. I feel like in Nashville, this this happens more often than, than not, is like we've been neighbors for the last year and a half almost, and yeah. and we've we've had our little interactions. We've talked about getting together for dinner or something. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're a working drummer. Yeah. Which we'll get into that. Sure. And so uh, you stay busy. I know I... I 
everybody's always busy in Nashville. You always got about 10 irons in the fire. Oh, yeah. So I'm actually excited to actually finally get to sit down with you. And we have to schedule a podcast, as you do in Nashville, yep. to be able to just kind of <laughs> learn a little bit more about each other. Your son's been cutting our grass for the last, since we moved here. And, and I appreciate that, putting him to work. Well, you know, that's that's the way to build character, and it, it saves me from my uh, hay fever, so. Awesome. <laughs> now, that's a good neighborly thing to do, and it helps uh, helps him learn the value of a dollar. Yeah, which, you know, we can all use a, a re-lesson on that from yeah. time to time. But, yeah, I'm just super interested. I know you grew up in Ohio. T- tell us a little bit about uh, growing up and, and what the— uh, childhood was like growing up in Ohio? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Columbus, Ohio is where I'm from. It was a great place to grow up. It's kind of the normal, the medium of all things America. I mean, it's kind of the Midwest. It's kind of the East. It's the Rust Belt of the Midwest. Nobody has a real strong accent one way or another. Um... It was kind of a middle-class suburb of the city, but we were close to everything, and Columbus was growing. Ohio State is there, good college town, and music became a part of my life, and Columbus was definitely fed into that interest with great musicians, great, again, schools and places to learn and grow and play. I went to school there, went to School of the Arts in high school, which led to uh, going to college at a conservatory, a smaller school in the shadow of Ohio State called Capital University. I met my wife there, who you know, and um, so after being there, going to school, going to college, and then working music retail after school because my degree was in music business. Okay. And uh, worked in the music store, the drum store where I grew up, shopping all my life. Nice. Uh, discount? Di- major discount to uh, a dangerous discount, as I like <laughs> to say. Um, and that. I think I outgrew Columbus mm. to the point where I was in my mid-20s and thought, it's time to, to go. Uh, so that's Columbus really in a nutshell. And were, then around, Were you married at that point? When- no. So my wife Liz was, we had been together for about five years. Uh, she was still in graduate school at Ohio State. And uh, so we were dating, living in Columbus. And she had an opportunity to go overseas and live in China and teach at a university where she taught English and American culture. I was thinking, I think I want to move to Nashville. I have friends there that are urging me to make the move. Again, not taking anything away from my experience in Columbus, my family, my friends, the music community that was there, the diversity of music that was there, the art culture that fed into that. So like we were mentioning, like I was mentioning to you before we started, I was playing drums with a Brazilian band, a big band, a top 40 band, a deadhead band. I mean, just all this kinds of music that was great, but my mentors, the musicians, the drummers that I looked up to in 
the music scene in Columbus were struggling financially. And I thought, I can't even touch these players. They're so good, and they've accomplished so much in this city, but they're still struggling financially. And I want something more because I want to have a normal life and a musician's life. Yeah. I want to have a family. I want to have kids. I want to have a house. And I want to play music. I want to do... I just... I want... And, and I thought Nashville seems like that happy medium. Yeah. You know. So... Going back a little step back, when did music first enter your story, and was it always drums? No, it wasn't. Uh, my neighbor, when I was about seven or eight years old, his father ran an entertainment business. And so he produced these live acts that had singers and dancers and a live band. This is like late 70s, early 80s. Okay. So it wasn't people singing to tracks or doing anything. They you had to have a live band. So when we would hang out, we would go to a rehearsal space that he had, and we would hang out at the rehearsals and watch these bands play. And I was just so taken by the whole process, the hang, the look and sound and vibe of these creative young people that were older than, way, way older than me, but still, uh, in hindsight, they were young people just looking to get into the business who were going out and performing on doing cruise ships and festivals and fairs. And then the church that I was a part of was one of those huge churches that had a large music program. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, you know, in the mo mostly white suburb of Columbus. It, you know, it wasn't like a gospel church or anything like that. But the music program was important. So they had, I mean, a 500-member choir. Oh, wow. They had an orchestra pit. You weren't kidding when you said huge. So what, what does membership look like on I'm Sunday? I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was like three services... Uh, it was, um, they had, uh, some wonderful musicians there. I remember the first set of electronic drums that ever existed. That church had it. And then they had a huge acoustic drum set. You know, so I just remember when I got into drums, what they all had. And then, of course, the youth group was rather large. So as I, as I was growing up, there were opportunities there mm -hmm. for me to get into. So the combination of the church music community and my friend and his family that were a member of that church who had their uh, foot in the music business as much as you can in a non-music town, those two things, I think, kind of narrowed my focus in considering being a professional musician mm -hmm. um, as I reached high school. And then, of course, you do the band thing. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, what kind of music was your first band? My first band? Well, th this was my neighbor um, because he was there and his dad was in the... Well, I, I would almost say 
the very, very first thing that I was ever in, I played guitar, and I use that term loosely. <laughs> so this was my neighbor whose father was in the music business. His older brother played drums. He played keyboards, and I played guitar. And we would play as much as we could of what the bands his father was producing would play. So I'm trying to remember... Um, just classic 50s and 60s stuff. Like doo-wop type stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I don't even think I was making a chord. We had microphones and speakers and a drum set and an electric keyboard and an acoustic guitar. And we would just, on Saturday afternoons, sit down and jam and sing these songs while his older brother kept the groove. And that was kind of it. That was how we played, you know on yeah. Saturday afternoons and then we'd run outside and ride our bikes and play with action figures and so you were 14 I was probably 8 or 9 oh wow maybe 10 super young and then when I was in middle school all my friends were going to be in band and they said alright what do you want to play and one kid would be I'll play trumpet great so I was going to a small Christian school that was connected to that mm -hmm. church what do you want to play? Oh, trombone. Great. We'll sign you up. Make sure we get all these instruments together and bring them in. And they look at me. What do you want to play? I'm thinking, I don't know how to play anything. Of course, I played, took piano lessons, played a little bit of guitar, but none of that was in band. I'm like, I just want to be in band with my friends. Mm -hmm. I'll play cymbals. Band director looks at me. Awesome. <laughs> looks away. Looks to the next kid. What do you want to play? And I'm like, okay, that was the wrong answer obviously he didn't like it and I said I'll play uh, bass drum he's like okay we'll get a bass drum for you just something I can hit any way I can participate yeah I wanted to be a guitar player I used to leave uh, catalogs music catalogs that my friend would get mm -hmm. and give them to me and I'd find these beautiful strats oh, yeah. open up the page stick it under my mom's pillow and be like Hopefully she'd get the hint. <laughs> it's like the tooth fairy. Yes. Uh, but it just it didn't happen that way. The whole time in band I was playing drums. And then around my freshman year of high school, I kind of had an epiphany. I think I'm a drummer. Hmm. And my friends were getting drum sets, and they're like, should I spend my money on a drum set or ski club for high school? Hmm. Do you like having your drum set? And the guy's like, yeah, man, you could just jam anytime. Perfect. I'm going to mow some lawns. I'm going to earn some money, and I'm going to get a drum set. And that was after a few years of playing bass drum and band? Bass drum, a little bit of cymbals, learning to read, hanging out with my friends who were taking drum lessons, who were learning, hmm. and using school as a launching point. Okay. to learn and the whole time air drumming finding music discovering music as you do when you're 12 13 14 yeah really shaping your musical sense yeah from my friends my neighbors their older siblings i have two older sisters a half sister and then another sister and my oldest sister was really into music and so growing up, it was 
the Commodores, Earth, Wind, and Fire, mm. Lionel Richie, Steve Miller. Classic 70s. Classic 70s, horn bands, uh, funk bands, different things like that. And then classic rock was introduced from neighbors and friends, and you start to formulate your own mm-hmm. catalog of that. And that's, that's really the impetus, the start of all that. Very cool. So other than music and your early story, what, what other things do you find was, was shaping you as a, a young person and giving you a, a point of view? Point of view of life? Life, your own philosophy. Yeah. Well, I think that now that I have a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, it's driven home more and more how important those years are. Mm-hmm. That transition from child to prepubescent to teenagers to adult. Yeah. And I feel like that's the transition from just a kid that rides his bike, watches TV, hangs out with his friends, to who am I, to what do I want to do how do I want to be identified by the world? Yeah. And that's, I think music was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But also, when I was 13, my parents divorced. Mm. And that defined a lot of, I think, who I was. Yeah, and that's a crucial time, yeah. especially for a, a young man. I was the youngest of three. I was the only man in the house, uh, boy, yeah. I guess. My mom needed to work three jobs to help hold on to the house that we had and keep us wow. in school where we were, the good schools that we were. So uh, you were a latchkey kid. I guess. And so even when I was 15... It was my job to take care of the cars, mm. change the oil, be there uh, for the, the things that my mom expected of me. I mean, she obviously grew up in a different time, and her expectations of me as a, as a young man were different. Um, her oldest was in college. Her uh, My next oldest sister was in high school and dealing with boys and all those issues, driving. So when my father was out of the picture, then the drum set showed up. Mm. So again, it goes back to music, but I think that it was uh, that experience really fast-forwarded my desire to have an identity and create my own narrative Mm-hmm. of who I wanted to be. And so music was the most logical thing. And it involved a community. Yeah. It involved friends, it involved that, and that's I, I liked that. I didn't think about it being a career. I thought about it being an identity, a, a, a way of communicating with, with others. And that shaped my personality. It shaped my interest. And then all of a sudden you start getting into certain bands. And Mm -hmm. then you're like, who are these people? You're looking at pictures on records, fold-outs on cassette tapes. 
you want to dress like them. My hair started to grow longer. Um, the way I dressed changed. Um, and that gave, that was an empowering time to be able to deal with um, this void that was kind of left in my life. I didn't want to own up to that, yeah. the dad being out of the picture, because I didn't need that. I yeah. needed my friends and my music. I could go down. Of course, I was home by myself a lot because everybody was working and busy. I could just beat the drums. I could just do whatever. And that was my thing. I had my music and my thing and my friends. Then you get into a little bit of trouble as you get older. And then I started working uh, when I was 15 and 16 and uh, part-time work at a convenience store and stuff like that. So I started making my own money. And then you get a car and girlfriends. The the next stage happens. It real fast. Mm-hmm. I was not doing well in school at all. Were you doing well before the divorce? No. I was never a good student. So, so that was never where, where the identity was. It was it, it, did, it never seemed like academics was a really uh, important thing in our family. It was just like just stay between the lines and and stay out of trouble, and we'll get to church on Sundays and get involved in the youth group, and we're all good to go. And, you know, you're still alive? Good. All right, I'm off to work, and, <laughs> you know, everything's good. Um, but there was a point in my sophomore year of high school where we had career day, mm-hmm. and we had to set up a time to follow and mentor somebody in the field, the career that we were seeing ourselves in, we wanted to do. So, hey, I want to, you know, I want to work as as a plumber, so I'm going to go hang out with this plumber during the day. And we had that day off, Mm, this whole day to just go hang out. There's Eli. Yeah. You can hear him. Yeah, the dog knows. There's a... Everybody was going to take the time to hang out with the person during the workday, mm-hmm. which is anywhere between 8 in the morning till 5 or 6 at night. That's pretty typical. Well, at that point, I don't know when the light switch went off, but I'm like, I want to be a, I want to be a musician. Well, everybody that I knew, they played gigs at night. They played in the clubs. They maybe worked retail. I don't know. Um... So I never made it happen. The day, if and the teacher was like, if you don't find somebody, then you will hang out in the library all day long and write a report. That's your punishment for oh, not wow. getting it together. Well, I didn't get it together, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're like, all right, well, you have to write a report. So in the school library, I'm looking up these books on the music business, which mm-hmm. was just pitiful. You know, even then I knew, man, this is not... Here's a here's a book on how to start a band, and it was just the worst. Yeah. And I'm writing this report. And the teacher looks at it. And he goes, "This is what you want to do?" I was like, "Yeah, this is what I want to do." And of course, she looks at me. She looks at my grade. Looks at the way I'm dressed, and thinks, "Of course you do." Yeah. Yeah. And we never got along. 
But she goes, I've got something for you. There's a, there's a school of the arts, a vocational school of the arts that you need to go to. And I'm going to call your mom and we're going to set up an appointment. It's a two-year program, junior, senior year, downtown Columbus. And I mean, this lady, and I, later I had a chance to thank her for this. That's cool. My mom was slammed. She calls our youth pastor. Can you take him to this audition and whatever? I, I'm on it. I'll do it. Nice. He calls me. Hey, we've got this thing set up. Here's what you're going to do. I vaguely remember how this went down, but I went in with my sticks and snare piece or whatever. Had the audition. Got in. Next year, junior and senior year, I would spend half the year in high school, go home for lunch, then head downtown for the vocational school and study music theory, uh, music history, vocal music, instrumental music, ensembles, and and then run back to high school and do marching band and whatever for a little bit. But then that became my sole focus. Mm-hmm. Now, and was everybody doing the high school and the other school, or were most people just doing the other school? It was that kind of program. You had to go to a regular school. Now, after I graduated, it became a full-blown high school with academics. Mm-hmm. But it was a primarily only focused on whatever vocation you were doing. Uh, so it was anything from computers to math to visual arts. In my building, it was radio and TV, dance, vocal, instrumental music. Okay. And so we were a small high school, and that was our focus, and that was my people. That was my focus. You found your tribe. I did find my tribe. It's where I met Mike, our neighbor. Mm-hmm. It's where I met Jenny. She was in dance. It's where they met. Very cool. Those were my people. And my grades went up. I was all A's in regular high school, in vocational school for sure. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, hey, where are you going to go to college? I don't know. You should check out this uh, um, this conservatory here or Ohio State or whatever. And so that led to that. So I know that that teacher making that phone call led, one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a dom- the domino effect of that phone call, of that experience led to going to vocational school and led to the conservatory and then finding my people again and then narrowing my focus on what it is that I wanted to do. Now, before that teacher did that and gave you that opportunity, Mm -hmm. was college even on the radar for you? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, we weren't upper middle class. We were definitely uh, struggling to keep the house in the neighborhood that we were in. Mm -hmm. But the community in the suburb of northern Columbus was upper middle class. I would equate it to Brentwood. So it was still a social expectation. There was. You would go to some kind of college. You would. Now, in the vocation, vocational school that I was in, there were students from all over the city. So our neighbor, Mike Jackson, came from a closer to the an inner city type school. And college for him was not even... A question. He's like, I'm not going to school. I I just need to get through high school because his school, the emphasis was 
you just need to graduate from high school. Keep yeah. the kids in school. My mm-hmm. school was, all right, folks, where are you going to college? Let's start focusing on, you know, getting those uh, college acceptance forms and all the things and applying for scholarships and mm-hmm. financial aid. That was my school. That was the culture from the school I was in. Now, the other student that we went to school with was Jay DeMarcus from Rascal Flats. Very cool. Yeah. So the bass he, player. Yes. His focus was keyboards okay. in, in school, and he started to play a little bit of bass our senior year. So meeting people like that, mm-hmm. and then he and I were in a band together for a couple of years. Um, Y'all still stay in touch? No. He keeps in touch with Mike. Okay. Though, but um, no, I hadn't seen him. I see him in passing from time to time, but our paths have taken completely different routes. Yeah. <laughs> but he he does keep in touch with Mike from time to time. That's yeah. cool. So so from Ohio now, at what point did uh, it become evident to you that in order to make a decent living as a professional? musician and drummer that you'd probably need to move somewhere yeah well i i can tell you one thing so after school i was house sitting and paying a little bit of rent but i had a house where i could set up drums and practice i was working at the drum store like i said i had a a handful of students that i was teaching i was playing in like five bands so making a living doing music? I was making a living doing music. And I had a conversation. I don't always remember this. I was having a conversation with my sister who was older, married, went to Bible school, met her husband, living in Indiana, was having her second kid. And she says, I, I worry about you. Oh, what are you worried about? Well, I, I worry that you want to do this music thing for a living. But I'm worried that if you don't like end up on... Now, this is telling of the time. Mm-hmm. If you don't like end up on MTV, you're going to be like really disappointed mm. that you didn't make it in the music business. And I'm 23, 24. And I said to her, I'm doing music right now. Mm-hmm. Like This is how I make my living. I'm not in one band. I'm not doing this. Of course, my understanding and concept of the industry was not what it is now but still I knew that I could only do so much in Columbus but I was doing everything I could do I was like I work in a music store I teach I play in all these bands I am in the music business yeah there's more to it than this you realize that well I just that's great hey good for you I'm glad that life is good for you and you have family I want that too I don't remember the conversation, but it shed some light on the perception of the music industry that I was beginning to understand just from the experience that I had in Columbus, mm-hmm. working retail, meeting players, meeting people in the industry, the retail industry, the, 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 the players in town that were doing some amazing things within the confines of the city, or those who have moved to other places L.A., New York, uh, Minneapolis, Chicago, some to live to Nashville. So then I had friends that were living in Nashville, and I would keep in touch. How's it going? Dude, great. you got to move down here. 
And this was there in probably what year? Probably 95, 96, oh, 97. So that was a big boom time for, for yes, Nashville. it was. It was definitely uh, a, an important time, and friends were moving down. I had about three close friends I went to college with that were saying, man, Colum- uh, Columbus is great, but a friend of mine said, if you come to Nashville you will be treated like you will be treated with the respect that hardworking musicians need because this is legitimate work i'm like i know it's real work but everyone thinks it's a passing thing and i keep thinking of the conversation with my sister and my dad thinking, when are you ever going to go back to school and get a degree in business? And get a real job. Get a real job. Grow up, you know? Yeah. And I struggled with that internally, of course, because that's the, the culture in which I lived. But I always had that in the back of my mind. There's got to be more to this. Yeah. It's and, interesting how many musicians have that story. It's almost like you're not given the permission to treat this as an actual career. It's got to be a a passing hobby or a phase or something and then it eventually it'll play out and you gotta actually put on the big boy pants and get a real job yeah i mean my parents were supportive and i think my dad felt like he needed to be supportive knowing that his involvement in our lives was limited so he didn't want to upset the cart he had his own demons to deal with and just the time that we had together was spent just hanging out my mom was always supportive, you know. Um, so I, I, I really value that. And, uh, and my dad eventually did become more supportive. But I, I give him a, a certain amount of a pass. I mean, his father lived through the Depression. Yeah. And his generation was required to find that job and then spend the rest of your life doing it until you retire. Mm-hmm. And so I think where we were in this stage of our life and our country afforded my generation to then start to, and just before mine to start to look at what is, what, what do we want to do? Yeah. Not what we have to do, but what do I, how do I want to spend my life? How do I want to earn a living? And so I think more and more people started to get into more of the creative world and, does didn't make the industry any easier. Yeah. But it gave people options. And um I feel like the um the privilege that I had inherited from just the culture and the, the life that I had, even if even if we were struggling financially, I still had a lot of privileges that I think a lot of people didn't have that allowed me to say, oh, I think I want to do this. I think I want to do that. I could pretty much do anything. And I always realize in hindsight that there's a lot of people that never have that. Mm -hmm. A lot in other countries, but especially and even in this country. So I never take that for granted. And um, so... Well, that's a, a great point that you make, though, about like... Uh, where you're talking about sort of that scarcity mindset that people that grew up in the depression just just take to everything, and and I think even through war times and through Vietnam, you know, there's just mm-hmm. this this sense of unsettling that you have to 
you have to hold on to a good job. You got to yep. work hard. You got to, you know, do all the things that are going to make sure that you're taken care of in times of crisis because it's almost like a reactionary response to, sure. to the world being in turmoil. Yep. And then people coming along in the 70s and 80s growing up, they're post-Vietnam. Yep. It was really the first generation of Americans that that really didn't have a lot of that stuff. It was, you know just seeping into their DNA and coloring the way they see the world for, for the really the first time, I think, in our yeah. our country's history. I you had so. the opportunity to just have a blank slate and say, okay, well, I don't have that shaping what's going to be my future. So all the more on yourself to look in, inside and say, well, what do I really want to do, not what do I have to do? Right. I think there was less and less that we had to do. I mean, there was the post-war boom in the 50s where people made money, but there was still wars and conflicts that we were involved in that consumed the nation, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it was Korea and then, of course, obviously Vietnam, and then there was the draft. And so now my grandfather was too young for World War I and too old for World War II. My father was born in 1937. He served in the Army in 1960, 61, 62, and was out before Vietnam got really bad. So I feel like we've been really lucky. Yeah. But it was a time of excess in the 80s and oh, yeah. just ease, you know. And I think that um, I don't think the world became any less violent. Yeah. But it, our country became a little bit more. Um, it became less invested in the world politic. Yeah, a little more self-indulgent, I feel. Yes, and uh, and that shaped my upbringing for sure. Um, and it's interesting to look back, and then obviously to to think about that as as my boys are growing up in this this time yeah. right now. It's and almost come back around to that. It has, yeah. In, 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 in so many so many respects I, I feel like the 20th century I mentioned this to Liz my wife the other day I said I feel like the 20th century is like the 1960s of centuries mm-hmm. you know I'm fascinated with World War II and, and a lot of World War One as well and so I, I read and study a ton of it yeah. but I, I feel like one conflict led into the other, led into the other, mm-hmm. led into the other, and I, I and I, I feel like world wars and conflicts and that stuff defined the century. Yeah. And to think of myself in the second quarter of that century, and what how it shaped what kind of life I wanted to live as an adult. Can I can pull a lot from those world events and mm-hmm. what our country was in not so much there when you're in the thick of it but now when i look back i'm like wow yeah it's so interesting to me uh being a teacher and realizing that even high school kids like none of them were born and have a memory of september 11th and mm-hmm. know a world pre 9-11 now right and just such a vastly different world in so many respects it is September 11th, 2001, was the day that Liz and I found out that she was pregnant. Oh, wow. And um, that's why we... That's a heavy day. I was extremely upset 
because it was my day to, we were wanted to have a baby. We had made plans and, um, I mean, Liz didn't think she was going to be able to get pregnant. Well, doctors didn't plan on me being a part of the equation. <laughs> she got pregnant. It was supposed to be the happiest day of my life, and mm. it was tainted by this experience. And in the anniversary recently, uh, a few weeks ago, or last month, I realized how uh, much that affected me and I was so far removed from that day. I was an American, mm-hmm. for sure. We had friends in New York City. We had friends that worked in the Trade Tower that weren't there, yeah. that survived, that we couldn't get a hold of. Um, it was a scary time. But m- I was not there. I was not in New York City. Um, I didn't lose anybody personally. But the little bit the micro amount of PTSD that I had during that year it's so depressing Mm -hmm. and I don't even like to think about it I don't like to watch specials on it I don't like to listen to people talk about it on the radio me either I know this is getting a little off subject but this is a conversation (laughs) well it made me realize how much PTSD affects people for real yeah and I think, as at least in my lifetime, may, maybe it happened with with Pearl Harbor to an extent. But yeah. in, in my lifetime, I think that was the first collective, like not just countrywide but worldwide event that I know of that that created a just a global trauma. For mm-hmm. I mean, and and the way that the news media was shaped by that, and how they constantly replayed oh, yeah. the the people jumping out of buildings and the towers falling, yeah. it was just burning into our minds these images that you just can't they can't go away. It was the first attack on American soil. Mm-hmm. It was the first time the scroll on the news feed started happening. Yeah. You know more twenty-four hour news. So, yeah, it did change the thing, and uh, and security everywhere. Has oh, been, it's been a yeah, it's been it, a nightmare. Yeah, changed forever, especially with airports and yeah, but all events it's, now, it's it's ridiculous. So there's a new uh, super ID that you have to have by October of next year. I've heard about that, and it started in two thousand five they were going to pass it as part of the Patriot Act mm-hmm. to try and make things more secure. I hadn't heard anything about this. And then last week, my mother-in-law was like, you got to sign up for this. You got to get that. I'm like, what are you talking about? On top of your driver's license. Yeah. Yeah. Or on your driver's license. Oh, is it yeah, integrated now? Integrated with the, with the, um, um, that you know all the special holograms and all the things you yeah. can still use your passport just like a chip in it or something yeah I, I it's there's a barcode on it there's holograms it's just very hard to to duplicate you know or to make a um uh counterfeit mm. of but that was back from that time yeah so anyways uh yeah don't get me started too much on politics yeah <laughs> yeah down that road we but, could do a whole thing on just what the Patriot Acts have done for our country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of it I understand. Yeah. And uh, I did a lot of traveling over the last 10 years. And um, it's been a trip, man. 
and I've seen a lot of changes. I did a USO tour okay. in 2001, April of 2001. Who'd you tour with? Uh, I toured with a, a singer-songwriter named Chris DeCroce, who was the husband of um, country singer. She sang Strawberry Wine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dina Carter. D- Dina is it Carter. Dina or Deanna? Dina. Dina. Dina Carter. I've always missaid her name. Yeah. <laughs> Dina Carter. And uh, he was a rock guy, uh, Bruce Springsteen type thing. Mm-hmm. And so he had connections. But anyways, we were there. We were in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait in April 2001. The SS Cole had been bombed. And so security was tight. But this was pre-9-11. Hmm. And uh, to be in the Middle East was an interesting experience because that was after the first Gulf War, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that was an important thing. It was an eye-opening experience. Of course, going back to when I was living in Columbus, I wanted to move to Nashville. It was time to, for me to make the move. I had been living outside of school for five years, working and playing. Liz and I had a relationship but we weren't sure what we wanted to do. We were fiercely independent people. She was getting her master's degree in cultural anthropology. She wanted to go overseas, and she went to China. And I'm like, okay, you're going to China. I'm going to Nashville. It's time to go. Before we went, we took two months off and traveled across the country with an RV mm-hmm. and did all that stuff. thought, cool. Let's see if this relationship can survive. Yeah. The trip across the country was wonderful. We dealt with things that you deal with when you travel, and we got along swimmingly. It was great. great. This is a good test. But do we want to do this thing? Do we want to get married? This seems like a really adult kind of thing to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm going to China. Cool, I'm going to Nashville. She wasn't gone a month, and I was like, when are you coming back? And that was a, a good thing for us. Yeah. So as soon as she got back, I was already living down here. We got engaged, got married, and dragged her down here. Did she still stay a year over there? She stayed there a whole year. And then when she got back, I went and visited her for three weeks. And, um, but I, you know, we both knew that was, that was coming. Yeah. You know, so we. If it could survive the distance, there was something there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, um. So that was, I, I say all that, that for me, the move from Columbus to Nashville, it's not like it's two chapters of my life. It's like two books, hmm. complete, finished books. One is where I grew up, went to school, learned how to somewhat be an adult, yeah. and then come to a new city, get married, be a homeowner, be a parent, do all those really adult things. Yeah, just step right into it. Yeah. yeah. So what do you feel like was, if you're treating those two parts of your life as two separate books, what do you feel like the closing chapter was of the Ohio book? Well, I think it it was moving. It was just leaving. I, I felt like I did everything I could do. I don't think there was really a... Uh, I don't think I had necessary closure to it it was just a stepping point it's like to be continued to be continued in another place i mean i think music was to be continued but 
it was, and then when I moved to Nashville, I picked up working at a, at a drum store here through a recommendation of my old boss up in. So I continued to do retail with the intent of using it as a launching point into working as a full-time yeah. player. You make a lot of connections working at a music store as a musician. You make a lot of connections, you learn the lay of the land, and you learn the big differences between working in two different types of cities where the, the music scenes are completely different. Columbus is a great city. It's like any other city. There's lots of music and musicians, but it's not a music industry town. Nashville is a music industry town. Yeah. Everybody plays. Everybody's involved mm -hmm. in the music business of some sort, and the level of playing is tenfold. Yeah. And I quickly learned that I was kind of a medium big fish in Columbus. I was a super small fish in Nashville. That had to have been a culture shock. It was in that respect. Uh, in, it was still uh, had a, a little bit of a southern vibe. It was smaller than Columbus. I'd say they're almost equal now. Yeah. Um, so that was an adjustment. Uh, people calling me honey. Yeah. Uh, people uh, talking about the Civil War a lot. That I'd never heard of, yeah. Uh, things like that. Um, they they used to call it, they, and they may still do, the biggest little city in the country. Oh right, right, right. Um, then starting to work with musicians, uh, encountering uh, real in-your-face racism for the first time ever in my life. Oh really? Yeah. Like, uh, like what was that first experience? Um, it was shocking. It was surprising. Uh, I never thought that people still thought that way. I never thought that people would assume because I'm white that I was on board yeah. with their blatant racism. That's the more insidious part to me. Yeah. But that, and, and I can say that I still deal with that a little bit from time to time, um, but not as much as my community has changed yeah the people i work with are definitely more who i want to work with and i think as nashville has become more progressive yeah um but that at the time i'm not throwing nashville under the bus but at the it was time, a very different city 20 years ago it was and when we first moved down liz said i give this two years and then i'm out of here <laughs> then she fell in love with it yeah and she found her tribe and it worked out great. She found her work in refugee resettlement and her people. And so that kept us here. Mm -hmm. And I could do what I needed to do to build the time that I needed to uh, become, of a, become a full-time musician that I know I probably couldn't have done in Columbus. So who was, who was like one of the first big acts that that gave you the opportunity to start stepping into regular regular gigs so uh, a good friend of mine josh berkheimer who's a wonderful drummer who i grew up with was down here already and he was touring with uh eddie raven oh yeah and you know he's passed now right no no he's still no. alive still around you're maybe thinking eddie rabbit yep yep so Eddie Raven 
I knew nothing about country music. I knew who Kenny Rogers was <laughs> and Garth Brooks and Dolly Parton. That was it. And everybody knew them. Right. Yeah. So I did not know anything about any... I just knew, hey, I'll play drums. I am not picky about the music. It's pop music. I'm going to get it together and, and do whatever. So I started work with, with some young songwriters and doing things here and there. And But my friend Josh was touring with Eddie Raven, who had some hits in the late 80s and early 90s, but was really still just touring based on what his career was during that time. Yeah. And uh, he had an opportunity to go to another artist. And he goes, would you be interested in doing this? I'm like, heck yeah, man. But on a tour bus and doing all this stuff, 200 bucks a show, no per diem. Sounds great. I'll do it. <laughs> you know? Liz 200 I, bucks spent better 20 years ago, it, too. Well, it was. Liz and I had our first house. It was a small bungalow in Woodbine. And, you know, I, she was pregnant. And, or maybe Eli was already born. But the thing was just perfect and it threw me right into what it was like to be on to do touring it, it was light touring mm-hmm. but still it was like sleep, how, how many dates i bet probably 70 dates okay. a year every other weekend you'd go out and do one or two mm-hmm. shows and um it got busy enough that I couldn't work at the music store, but I couldn't afford to not work. Mm. And so I started working at a grocery store a little bit, stocking shelves part-time, and then started picking up more and more work. So weekend warrior routine. Weekend warrior routine, learning more, started playing on records, and then people were paying me for that, and then started doing some of the lower Broadway stuff. And it's like, man, okay, now we're starting to get somewhere. Which, can you speak to what? Broadway was 20 years ago because it's a very different Broadway. It is a very now. different Broadway, but it was still a decent place compared to what it was even 10 years before that. Late 80s, early 90s, it was still, you had Robert's Western World. I mean, I only know this from pictures and accounts of yeah. people that were in there. Um, adult bookstores. Oh, yeah. When I first started coming... Nashville in the mid to late 90s there was still just the the last remaining vestiges kind of on the outskirts of town of uh, all of that kind of thing yeah I mean it there were it, it didn't I didn't know that that's what was down there when I went down there uh, I, I started I, I started working with this this corporate band that did all the Walmart big events for their big corporate functions. So we'd play in these arenas for like 6,000 managers in Kansas City and and Houston. And uh, we went out two or three times a year. And the money was, at the time, insane. It was like a day rate. So Monday through Friday, I got paid every day to be out there. And we'd play two or three times that week. And I met a singer who was working in a band down at the stage which is one of the bigger clubs mm-hmm. down there. And so I that was my introduction to there. And there was Legends, there was, of course, Tootsies, there was across the street, there was a couple places that were okay, Crossroads, I don't know if it was there. But 
the band, fortunately, was amazing. They were great, great band. I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to work my way up. I was right in a great band, and I had to learn so many country songs that for now, now I take for granted. I'm like, I can't believe I wrote a chart for that Brooks and Dunn song. That's yeah. like, everybody knows that song. I didn't grow up on it. So I have charts for Brand New Man and, you know, all these songs and Alabama. And this was when the, the line dancing scene was huge in Nashville back then, right? Yeah, I don't remember people dancing so much. I remember doing gigs in Texas and the line dancing. That's probably amazing. mainly at the, uh, the Wild Horse. Yes. Yeah. The Wild Horse on 2nd Avenue, which is a Gaylord entertainment complex, humongous place. That still does the line dancing mm-hmm. lessons and all that stuff. But not so much down there. And so that became a part of the mix. And um, so that, that, was, that was an important time. And then juggling different things. And then one of the bands that I started to work with through it, meeting somebody in Eddie Raven, he started a band. And then I was working with them a little bit here and there. And then as they got busier and busier, I had to turn down work from other people. So that was about the time I met Michelle Wright, around 2006 or so, and started uh, doing a little bit of work with her, touring in December, November, December, for Christmas tours. Um, So you had two kids at this point. Yeah, so in 2005 was when Isaac was born, so that was our second boy. And uh, uh, we were both essentially working full-time. But when I was in town, it was working till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, Mm. coming home, picking the baby up, feeding it, taking it out for a walk, letting Liz sleep. Then I would go to bed. She'd get up, take the baby. The vampire life. We were somebody was always sleeping in our little house, two bedroom home. Her mom moved down shortly thereafter, after Isaac was born. She retired early, helped us out, and that became an important part of our life. And then I started traveling more and more. Uh, so. While she worked full time, I mean, it was it was a struggle for sure. But when I was in town, uh, it was always a trade off of that, you know. That and and we, as you know, being my neighbor, that continues to this yeah, day. Yeah, I'm pretty much home during the day. She's gone. We switch places. Gigging at night. Gigging at night. Taking taking yeah. the weekend work from time to time. Or if I'm traveling, it mostly is on the weekend. She's off work. And that's what the boys have mostly known. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. So, Michelle Wright, that was the first, the first, uh, it was probably a turning point in your professional career to kind of take you off more dates and expose you to, to more. Uh, yeah, touring. I mean, the, the, the Eddie Raven thing was, was a big turning point, but it wasn't um, where Michelle's gigs especially on the Christmas tours where we were gone for three to five to seven weeks, you were living on a tour bus. Yeah. And it wasn't weekend warrior stuff. 
that was a big thing for me. And I really liked it. I didn't like to be away from the family and the yeah. kids, especially at that important time. Um, but uh, you liked the lifestyle. I did like the lifestyle. I liked the freedom of not having anything to do until the stagehands and the lighting director wanted you to even come close to the stage, which was like around four o'clock in the afternoon. So I could go exploring and we'd be in all these beautiful towns all throughout Canada and hit the coffee shop, find a gym, uh, go walk around, meet people, you know, it was just, it was, it was really cool. How did that shape your cultural perspective? Being in Canada? Yeah. And just being able to, to, you know, explore all these different towns, different cities, different ways of life. Well, you know, what does the Simpsons call it? Uh, America light Canada, you know, I I did, I, I, I did fall in love with, uh, the fact that some of the stereotypes about Canadians are true, very true. They're very nice, polite yeah. people. Maybe not quite as much in French Canada. No, yeah. We we did a vacation in, in Quebec last year, and I really wanted to sh- expose Canadian culture to my family more, and we didn't get it as much. We did get some of it, but, but yeah, uh, it was uh, definitely in those towns and out west is the mountains um i think that the frustrating the epiphany about canada versus america was when you were in a town in or even a major city like winnipeg it had a identity to it it not only were were there more uh, of a diversity in cultural diversity in the different major cities of Canada, but when you when you were in the small towns, even some of the depressed towns of Ontario, there wasn't a Walmart. Mm-hmm. There wasn't. If you plop somebody down on a Walmart in the middle of Arkansas, and plop somebody down in a Walmart in the middle of Washington State. And, and said, okay, where are you? What state are you in? You couldn't tell. Because there's, it's just, there's this... It's like this homogenized thank society. You. Homogenization of the, of the city. Um, let's keep it in mind. <laughs> of the city, of the cities, which I get, you know, I understand what's what's happening as these cities grow but um i feel like there's my experience in canada didn't sour my taste of america it made me realize how much we are all missing in america and all the beautiful things that has that sometimes we don't see. Yeah, such as? Such as the cultural diversity of different parts of the country, the unique uniqueness of the different parts of the country that gives us a reason, an excuse to go 
to different places. Now, some of it's very obvious when you go out west, yeah, the northwest, the northeast, whatever, you know. Mostly the, the different types of nature that exist, I feel. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and even um, more so the, the, um, the uniqueness of, of, of the, the communities and the, and yeah. the, the culture of that. Yeah. Um, I still love to travel. And, you know, fast forward to, to now, the, one of the bands that I got busiest with was a band called Savannah Jack. And they grew from a band that was playing downtown every weekend to picking up more and more work. The lead singer was on a had a major label deal in the mid '90s, and then started to pull from that. And the band started to grow and began to work enough that I could kind of hitch my wagon to that. And it was like three guys, and I was the drummer. Mm-hmm. And it went through some changes over time, but. Over the arc of about 12, 13 years, they put out two big records, were on a, a minor label, had a single that went to number 42, and we were worked as hard as we could to do as much as, as we could. And that was the band that kept me busy. Yeah. And that's all I had to do was work with them. Yeah. You got to keep keep the pavements hot if if you don't have that yeah. that major label push and the money going behind right. it. Well, and 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 without as as that landscape changed, as the major labels became less and less important, investors were still investors individuals began to replace what the major labels were doing because you didn't need you don't need major labels to push your music to yeah. make your music available for the masses and that's just been the last eight or ten years how, yes. how that's massively yeah. Yeah. transitioned how has that affected your life and your way of being uh, as a, as an individual musician for hire as a hired gun um, I don't think as much as a band that's trying to push its label, its identity, its music out there. Yeah. Um, I don't have to deal with the pressure of pushing my own music and try and keep an audience engaged in my next and newest project. Yeah. Um, I have to be prepared to be a chameleon to work with different people that are spending their time and their energy doing that. And if it fails or if it doesn't go where they want it to go, they have to live with that. It's not on you. You're an independent contractor. Very much so. And when Savannah Jack started to do less and less stuff that I was interested in doing, um, I had to to jump ship. Mm Mm-hmm. And they were gone a lot, and I was missing so much at home. So in 2017 or so, January, I, I left that. And, uh, and that's where I've gotten back to what I was doing in the mid-2000s is work with several different bands and different artists and juggle those things so I'm not beholden to one thing. Diversifying. Now, diversify. Now, there are some outliers that keep me busy, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, all, they always have backup musicians. If I'm the first call guy, if I'm the second call guy, that's great. Yeah. Um, but if any of the gigs that I'm on right now go away tomorrow, 
I'll still be fine. Yeah. Um, but it's been about creating balance between uh, trying to stay busy in town. Yeah. And as we mentioned with Broadway, it has changed so much. Yeah. That not only were there just maybe nine clubs or ten clubs at the most yeah. down there in 2007. At least half of them are still anchors. They and, are. And they've always stayed around. Legends Corner of the Stage, Tootsie's, unfortunately. Uh, and then a couple owners that own a handful of those places. And then Wild Horse. Now there's probably 24 clubs, and each club has two or three levels. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, at least 40 or 50 bands playing at one time. Mm-hmm. And that's from eleven in the morning till two thirty at night. Yeah. So it's it's crazy. There's it's a cacophony of sound if you just walk down Broadway competing <laughs> noises. You hear fifty different bands playing the same ten songs. Yeah. And I was working when I first came off the road, I was working with a band six days a week from eleven in the morning till two in the afternoon. I loved the hours. And it was started out as a pretty good thing, but the band started to kind of dissolve and personalities were getting weird. And then I had other opportunities with better musicians and sort of I, I almost had to hit the reset button and start over. Even though I'd been here a long time, I had to start over and build my net worth again. And that's when I found uh, a couple groups that I really liked work really like working with. They still work late, unfortunately, but um, the money has gotten a lot better. So I feel like there's a lot more opportunities with all these big clubs that have been opened yes. up by artists now. Yeah, or they're, they're or they're using their names. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple people that do are involved, and some people are not. But still, they're they are. There's a base payer, and there's for people that don't know, there's a base pay, so it could be anywhere between sixty to hundred to hundred and fifty dollars. I remember when base pay was fifty, and we got a raise to sixty. That was a and big deal. And you had deal. to split that amongst everybody, right? No, it was per person. That was per person. Per okay. person. So now it's anywhere between fifty to hundred and fifty dollars per person, plus tips, plus tips. And some of the clubs are more restricted. If the higher the base payer, base pay, it was one hundred and fifty dollars then sometimes you can't run the tip jar. They don't want you to do that. There's more restrictions on the tip jar thing because they don't want to harass the audience. Where some clubs, it's just a part of the culture. It is part of it, and some of it is a good balance. So the stage, you can hire a tip. We have a tip girl that we hire Mm -hmm. that sings a couple songs, and then we send her out to get song requests and tips. She goes out and works the crowd while we do our thing. The bass is good. The tips are good. And I make more money doing that than I did ever touring <laughs> you know and you get to stay home and I get to sleep in my own bed even if it's three thirty, four o'clock in the morning yeah <laughs> and my chickens don't wake me up <laughs> that's nice now as we as we begin to wrap down uh wind down in the next few minutes you you said a couple things that are interesting to me I'd just like to get a quick take on yeah you said when you talked about Tootsies, you said, unfortunately, yeah. it's still around. I, I've heard a lot of negativity around Tootsies. Uh, yeah. A good buddy of mine, I just saw him last night at a at a club, Tyson Haynes. You know him? I don't. Uh, he he was p- 
the the leader of the house band at Tootsie's for seven years, and then they oh, had cool. a big falling out, and he was basically, you know, they parted ways. Mm-hmm. But I've heard from multiple people that's just one of many stories of of how how that club's been run and run for so many years. Could, yeah. Do you have any of your own experiences with that? Um, I have friends with lots of experience. I've played there, and uh, and if. If I trust the band and the band leader, I will take the occasional gig there. And Nashville, I have to say, Nashville is a small town. Everyone knows each other. Mm-hmm. And so if you have something bad to say about somebody or something, you want to keep it pretty close to the vest. But I feel like I, I'm not ashamed to say that a place like Tootsie's or a place that that owner owns, like a place like Nudie's. Yeah, they own several. They own several, Nudie's Honky Tonk Central. I have good friends that have good gigs there and work there, but you have to follow a set of rules that, whether it's one of the th- reasons why I left the Nudie's gig is management was telling the band leader, you have to play faster songs or you have to play faster. Mm. The quality of mu- music was so bad, and tempos were ten to twenty clicks faster. No joke. Than Which is the tough original on a drummer. Song. It's tough on it's a drummer. Learned it the the yeah. right way. These are three hour, four hour, nonstop, one potty break, wow. gigs. That'll build your chops for sure. Yeah. But I thought. This is decent money, but the band leader is feeling a lot of pressure from management. They're watching him through a security camera. They're texting him while he's on stage and say, pick it up, pick it up. He was feeling the pressure. He was putting the pressure on the band. He was losing himself. And just, I'm like, okay, if any potential gigs or prospects or employers walk by and see me play this standard song this fast, they're gonna think that guy sucks. Yeah. And I'm like, nope. I then it's a poor reflection on you. It is a poor reflect reflection on me and I don't need this. It's better for me to invest my time and energy in music and musicians that I feel good about. It was an epiphany to me when I would be playing with this band and a friend or somebody would say, hey, we're going to be in Nashville. Where can we see you play? And I'd say, uh, and I would not tell them. Hmm. I'm like, that's a bad sign. Yeah. Liz came to pick me up from a gig. We were down to one car for one reason or another. And I got in the car and I said, I can't do this anymore. Hmm. She said, don't. Don't do it. We'll figure something out. What was the breaking point for you? Well, I think uh, I think seeing managers getting upset with the, the band leader. Now they never talked to me. They never, and I thought if I don't want to, I don't want to jeopardize this gig for anyone else in the band. Yeah. But I I kept telling myself if they say anything to me about what I'm doing or a non musician, because I'm looking and I know this. I hope this doesn't come off as bad, but I, it was to the point. I feel like I'm a pretty cool, collective kind of guy. Yeah. But it was to the point where I thought, manager, I'm 10, 15 years older than you. I could do your job today. You couldn't do what I do. I've worked 
all my life. I work very hard to do, to know how to do what I do. The hours and hours that musicians put into doing this, it's no easy. So don't you dare tell me what to do. And I feel like it was that vibe, that culture, that I never, ever experienced. It's gross. At the stage or Legends Corner, which is owned by somebody completely different. The staff knows you. They treat you well. The bouncers look out for you. They don't rough anybody up unnecessarily like they do at Whiskey Row, where people have, there's lawsuits against them. Mm-hmm. Um, at Tootsie's, there's a little bit of that, but mostly the experience that I've read about, heard about, and have experienced personally is bands being double booked and not compensated. Mm. The pay being bad, um, and nobody's expected to be weighted on hand and foot. Nobody's expected to have any extra than anyone else, breaks or otherwise or anything like that. We're all in there to work. But there is a a, uh, a culture in Tootsies and Nudies and, and some of those other places of this passive-aggressive behavior and this to get what they want out of the musicians and out of the bands or what they feel like will bring in more people. And some of it might work, but in the long run, you're going to get the desperate musicians that just need work. Yeah. And you're not going to get the good people you're not going to get. And so you're going to f- hear some great bands in, in any of those clubs, but consistently... Yeah, you're they're gonna, not going to stick around. They're not. And if you treat somebody well, and it's like, these are the kind of... And I, I think, as a general rule, it just makes sense to me. It's the golden rule. Yeah, it is totally golden, golden rule. Um, treat your neighbor Yeah, as you would want. I brought you some eggs, man. I know, man. I can't <laughs> wait. Fresh eggs straight from the chickens. That's right. I appreciate it. Oh, I got them from Kroger. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's the trick. Oh, you just put them in a, that's them right, in a yeah. cup, make them look yeah. fresh. That's right. Mix the brown and the whites. That's right. <laughs> um, so that's that's my thing on Tootsies. Um, I will not be a, in a house band on a regular gig with them. But and, and here's the other thing, is a lot of people still think of Lower Broadway as getting paid 25 bucks and... Yeah, and a little bit. So I have friends that are like, I won't. There's no way I'll play, and that's great. That's fine if that's kind of where they draw the line and how they want to work. I will not talk them into it. More work for me. Yeah. But it has changed so much so that if you find the right people and not just a bunch of musicians that are just coming together to try to hack through the standards to get through that night, it can be a really great experience. It can be. Uh, something that when friends say, hey, where are you playing? Dude, come out to the stage. I'm playing with a band called Three Lane. Great singers, phenomenal bass player. I'm the odd man out. These guys are great. You'll be entertained. And uh, they can kick, be invigorating. They'll, they kick my butt every time. Um, it's going to be just as good as anything you'll see anywhere. And these are players at the top of their game. And some of them have done amazing things. And you'll go down on a Monday night, and I'll start at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, and the place will be jam-packed. There'll be 250 people in there on the ground floor, and I'll make decent money. I'm sorry. 
I, <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds really funny. I'm sorry, I will not apologize for that. I just said I'm sorry. But that is something that I'm, I'm happy that that's happening. I don't know how long it will last, but right now it's keeping me home. And with two kids, with still, uh, you know, a part of our household for at least the next four or five years. Yeah. Crucial, crucial years for growing up yeah. boys. And this, right, and I'm here for them as they go through the high school, the girlfriends, the cars, the guitars, all the things. Sounds like a song. Yeah. No Cadillacs yet. <laughs> Girls, guitars, Ford Taurus? That doesn't work. Hmm. That's a good first car. <laughs> My first car was actually a Ford Taurus, and, but it, it uh, had a bad transmission, so I never got to drive it. <laughs> Mine was a Pontiac T37, 1971. Oh, killer. Well, well, my first car that actually drove was a Pontiac 6000 LE, 1986. Nice. Yeah. It's a good year for music, too. It was. Yeah. It was. And uh, as, as we wrap up, there's one question that, that I like to ask all of our guests, and that is, what is giving you life these days? Mm. That's an easy one. I just can't narrow it down to one thing. Don't have to be one thing. Yeah. Man, watching my boys go through life, experience and and being able to be there with them and selfishly stay involved in the work that I want to and my wife being able to stay involved in the work that she wants to and still watch them do I I really feel like I have I have it all you know and none of it's easy yeah but it's worth every second and it they're such a joy and they're such fun dudes. You, you've raised fine young men. Thank you. Thank you. Um, they're just, they're a, they're a lot of fun to be around. And um, they, they make mistakes like everyone else. But um, I couldn't be prouder. And they are, um, they're much better and smarter young men and musicians than I was at 14 and 17. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they've had some good guidance from Thank you. from a present father. Thank you. Yes, and that's that's. It's I I hope to as as we've decided to do better than to try and do better as our parents, not as a as a bad thing, a bad reflection on our parents. They did the best they could. My hope is that that tradition gets carried on, and they kick my ass as parents when they're my age that's all you can hope for yeah well thanks so much matt uh it's it's been a pleasure getting to speak with you and just uh share our hearts here at at my dining room table it's awesome uh and for all things idiopod check us out like review subscribe check us out idiopod.com i'm tj stone thanks for checking us out guys till next time mm-hmm.